I encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me in it to the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 10. And there, please follow with me as I read, beginning with verse 32, and I'm going to read through the end of verse 45. Who is the greatest? Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 32. I want to say a word just at the beginning that we're reminded in the very opening words of Mark's gospel that his account is what he terms the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And like the other Gospels, his Gospel is not a biography per se, though it contains many biographical details therein. But it is his concern to communicate his account of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And the one thing about Mark is that he focuses not exclusively but preeminently on Jesus' destiny which was the cross. He came into this world to die, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And Mark's concern is to trace for us in his gospel our Lord's relentless resolve uh, from womb to tomb that he might fulfill this ordained call to be the Savior of the world. So beginning at verse 32, hear the word of God, Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they, that is the disciples, were amazed. And those, that is the larger crowd who followed, were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See! We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us the sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, that is the other ten disciples, heard it, they began to be indignant 
at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, your diaconos, your deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be slave, doulos of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you be so kind as to pray with me and for me with respect to the ministry of the word? Let us pray. Oh, Holy Father, we bow in your presence and as we do so, we feel very acutely the need for your gracious assistance that you would be pleased to come in the power and authority of your spirit and magnify your word before us. Help us, Father, to have hearing hearts. Help us, Father, to hear to the good of our souls. And help us, Father, to hear in a way that will please and honor you. And Father, we pray that our lives will tra be transformed by what we learn here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were asked the question, how does the Bible help us to live lives that are honoring and pleasing to God, how would you go about answering such a question? How does the Bible help us to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to God? Well, one of the most obvious answers might be, well, the Bible tells us the things that God loves on the one hand and the things that God hates on the other. True enough, it gives us commandments that we are to obey, and it sets before us in clear details the kind of behavior that God desires for us to yield to him. But that answer perhaps is not the best because the primary way I think the Bible teaches us to live lives that are pleasing to God and honoring to God is to set before us the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is what gives you and I incentive to Christian ethics, to live as God desires for us to live. Without the cross of Jesus, all we would have would be a list of do's and don'ts. And the Bible is never to be reduced to a list of do's and don'ts. We see that very strikingly, I think, in the passage before us 
this morning, we will see how Jesus impresses upon his disciples the lifestyle that is pleasing and honoring to God. There are some four things I want to draw your attention to this morning. You have an outline in your bulletin. The second point needs correction, and I'll do so when we come to it. First of all, then, please notice the relentless resolve of our Lord, which we see in verses 32 through 36. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus has come into the world. Why? He has come to die. He was born to die. He has come into the world, sent by his Father to be the sin bearer of the world, the Lamb of God to bear away the sin of the world. He has come into the world to lay down his life for the world. And he has come to be the atoning sacrifice to address and deal with our sin against God. And our Lord Jesus Christ, he is very conscious of what lies before him. And you see that in verses 32 through 34. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus knows what lies before him in Jerusalem. Now, he does not yet know the extent of the suffering to which he is going to be exposed that awaits him. But he knows in principle that he is going to be the sin-bearing sacrifice for the world. Absolutely confident of it. But he does not know what that is going to prove for him existentially or personally in terms of becoming abandoned by God, of being cursed by God in our place and for our sake. But there is, you'll notice, this relentless resolve about our Lord. He refuses to be sidetracked from the mission entrusted to him by his Father. He has come into the world to seek and to save the lost. He has not come to hide from the cost of becoming the sin-bearing sacrifice to his God. This is Mark's third clear announcement of our Lord's suffering and death and what is to follow. Now in John's gospel, there is a very striking moment recorded in Jesus' earthly ministry when he prays, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is my soul trouble. And what shall I say? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose. I have come. To this hour. There is this relentless resolve. At the heart. Of Jesus life. And that relentless resolve. Was first of all. Fashioned in eternity what theologians refer to as the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. 
in obedience to his father when Jesus agrees to become the sin bearer of the people of God throughout all the ages of history. He was the obedient son who then undertook to himself to be the obedient servant. And it was for us that he hung and bled and suffered on Calvary's tree. If someone could have asked the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was relentlessly plodding along his way to Jerusalem, knowing what lay before him, if someone had asked him, Jesus of Nazareth, why are you freely walking into this holocaust of suffering? Why? His answer would have been, for you and for them. I have come to lay down my life. That is the relentless resolve on the part of our Lord. But in the second place, and this is where I will correct the outline, notice in the second place the insensitivity of his disciples to his determination to become the sin-bearing sacrifice of the world. Their insensitivity to our Lord. There's this amazing insensitivity on the part of his disciples. And here is our Lord. His, his mind and his soul is presently being saturated with the realities of his coming passion. And James and John, they approach him with their pure, carnally ambitious request. And Mark wants us to understand the request of James and John then against the backdrop of what he has just written concerning Jesus' relentless resolve to go to Jerusalem and there to die in the holocaust of suffering. Hence their request is the epitome of other insensitivity and sheer carnality. And we're told in verse 32 that the disciples were amazed at this relentless resolve of Jesus. They knew something momentous was happening. But in the face of that, here is James and John and they blurt out, we have this request of what we want. And Jesus requires of their request, what do you want me to do? But you'll notice that before they even tell the Lord what they want, they want him to pledge to grant the request of a blank check. Give us whatever we want. And then Jesus has to ask them, what do you want? And then they make the request. But can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine bowing in prayer as a Christian and say, Oh Lord, I've got this request for a blank check. I just want you to give me what I want. Well, so James and John. Now then, the Lord says, what do you want me to do? And they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your messianic glory. We want those places of prominence and preeminence. And we want you to grant it. And this request on the part of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, becomes then, as it were, you'll notice, our Lord's platform, our Lord's pulpit from which to address 
the true nature of greatness in the kingdom of God. And here is Jesus' human soul. It's being engulfed by the prospect of becoming the sin-bearing sacrifice of the world. And all that concerns these disciples is preeminence of place and rank, status. That's all that concerns them. We want to be above the others. We want the place where we, we, we will be noticed and will be held in high esteem by others. So they're concerned for themselves. Instead of walking quietly with the Lord Jesus and praying for him, that he will be sustained in his mission, supporting him. They were preoccupied with themselves. They were consumed with their own interest and their own aspirations for greatness. And at the very heart of this sin is the determination to have self-exalted, to have self-noticed. That's actually the sin of Satan himself, is it not, who sought to exalt himself above God. It involves the sin of pride, the refusal to acknowledge others as being better than ourselves, which is required of us from Philippians 2 and verse 3. The desire to have the first place, the top place, the place of preeminence. We want to be where people will notice and honor us. Will you do that for us, Jesus? So there are others in sensitivity against the backdrop of what is transpiring. It's so stunning as to be beyond words. The weight of the Savior's mission is pressing sorely upon his human soul only to face this insensitivity on the part of his own disciples. Now we're told later on in verse 41 that when the ten, the other disciples, heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were really angry with James and John. Well, you might think, well, they were thinking, how can you two be so insensitive to the Savior? Do you not understand? He's marching to Jerusalem and there in obedience to the will of his Father to lay down his life as an atonement for sin. How can you be so insensitive? But on the contrary... If you're familiar with their earlier mindset, which we read of back in verse 34 of Mark chapter 9, and in the parallel passages of Matthew and Luke, it becomes clear that they were indignant. Why? Because James and John were attempting to upstage, outrank, and outstrip them in their own ambitions and aspirations for greatness. And Luke informs us at the beginning of this occasion that a dispute arose among them as to which of them is to be regarded as the greatest. The others were thinking that they wanted places of preeminence as well. That's why they were indignant with James and John. Not because of his blatant insensitivity, but because of their own blatant insensitivity. 
They were jockeying for the same positions that James and John were, and they didn't like the competition. But then notice in the third place how Jesus responds to them, and he does so so gently and so graciously. And bear in mind the sheer momentous nature then of Jesus' mission beginning to overwhelm him. The shadow of the cross is beginning to penetrate his human soul. It had to be the prospect of becoming God's sin-bearing sacrifice when he will endure in himself the judgment of God against human sin. And it's in that context that Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we're able. <laughs> well, Jesus' questions are intended, and this is made plain in the original, to, re to evoke the response of no. No, we're not able to drink that cup that you shall drink, or actually that you're now drinking because the verb is in the present tense. And he expects them to say, no, we're not able to do that. But they say to Jesus, and we'll see this in a moment, oh, yes, we can do that. Oh, yeah, no problem. Got it covered. We can handle it. I thought to myself as I read that passage, like so many Christians, they're just like me. They think they know everything. They think they can handle it. Oh, yes, we can drink that cup. We can be baptized with your baptism. No problem. Bring it on. They didn't even understand themselves. And so often, that's the difficulty with us, is it not? And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, he says. And what Jesus meant was this. The cup was the cup of suffering. The cup was the cup of sin bearing. The cup of the wrath and judgment of God upon human sin. It is the use of imagery in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, in the prophecy of Isaiah. And only Jesus can drink from that cup. Only Jesus in himself can drink of the cup of God's righteous wrath against human sin and thereby empty it to the dregs. Only Christ can do that. But he is saying to these disciples, in a sense, you will drink of my cup because you are going to experience in the flesh what it means to belong to me. You're going to know what it means to be so identified with me that you're going to endure the hostility of the world. You will bear in your own body as many of them did the cost of belonging to me. So you will drink of my cup. You will undergo the baptism with which I am baptized. And Jesus is thinking of being overwhelmed here by Calvary's cross. 
the righteous judgment of God against sin. He is portraying his death as an overwhelming baptism, a holocaust, if you please, of God's judgment. And he's saying to his disciples, you will share in that judgment. You will share in that baptism. You will be so identified with me that the world will likewise set its face against you as it has against me. Dear people, we live today, you and I, in this Alice in Wonderland world of modernity. In a society that has embraced the make-believe fantasy of gender identity, we need to remember that the only thing that Jesus has promised his church in this world, in this world, is tribulation and suffering. The world can go mad and the world can be mad with you for not going mad with it. But that's part of bearing the cross of Jesus Christ. The only thing God has promised his church in this world is suffering and tribulation at the hands of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ did not promise us that things were going to get better and better. On the contrary, he said things are going to grow worse and worse. And we only need to look around us today to see what's transpiring in society. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Truth will increasingly, increasingly be opposed and marginalized, and we see that coming to pass in our day. Yes, we do need to do battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, but may God grant to us that we do it in the realism of faith, that all that the Lord Jesus has promised us in this life is suffering. Suppose you meet someone who tells you, that they would like to become a Christian. How do you think they would respond if you were to say to them, that's wonderful. Jesus says to you, come follow me and die. Isn't that what he does? In the gospel, die? Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, let him take up, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Let him die daily, Christ says. That's what he says. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot, not a kind of, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if you're not ready to die for my sake in the gospel, Jesus is saying you cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus calls his disciples to him and he seeks to teach them something that they desperately needed to hear. You know, he says, that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, you know that group, 
lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's greatness in the eyes of the world. And Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, your diaconos, your deacon. What is Jesus saying? He is saying and doing this. He is turning the values of this fallen world upside down on its head. You're looking for greatness? Jesus says, let me show you what greatness looks like. In my kingdom, assume the posture of a servant and die to yourself. There is greatness. Because in the kingdom of God, greatness does not depend on status or rank, but on serving and giving. The great ones are those who serve, not the ones who are being served. Jesus Christ himself, dear people, he is the servant king in every aspect. He's come to turn the values of this fallen world upside down. Or better put, to recover and to restore to this world the values that were there at the very beginning in creation. And this is because grace does not destroy nature, but grace refines, renews, and recovers nature. Now, is it wrong? Is it wrong to have an ambition to greatness as greatness is defined by God? No. My answer to that is no. Because if it were, Jesus would have said, Whoever desires to be great among you, let him repent of that ambition. Jesus does not say that. Rather, his clear meaning is, would you be great in God's estimation? Would you become great in terms of how God regards greatness? Because God pours contempt on the world's estimation of greatness. They see the man in the place of great power. And he's exercising great influence by keeping all these masses under his control. By lording it over them. And the world oohs and ahs in the presence of such people. Jesus says to his disciples, it shall not be so among you. It shall not be. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The great ones are those who serve and who give. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Surely that's true, is it not, dear people, in every area of life? It's true in the family. Husbands are heads of their family. They are heads of their family, but they are to do so with a servant's heart. As head of your family, do you seek to serve your family as a husband, as a father? Is your sense of headship that you're providing the needs of those you love? 
that you're serving them in that capacity. That's what headship is according to the Holy Scriptures. They're to lay down their lives if need be for their wives, for their children. What is the meaning of love in any relationship or context, whether it's parent-child, whether it's husband-wife, whether it's a friend's love for a friend? What is love? What defines love in any context? It is this. Love is as love does. Now, I know you knew that, but, but love is this. Love always always acts, it always behaves in the best interest of its object. That's love. That's love. Love behaves in the best interest of its object. It always does. Thus, husbands and fathers, you are to expend. You are to give your all for the good of your wife and your children. As husbands, you're to lead your families by serving your families. That's what leadership is all about, serving and giving. Now then, please notice this, last of all, I want you to look at how Jesus, in verse 45, uses his own personal example in order to buttress, in order to reinforce this truth which is expounding regarding the nature of greatness. And this takes us back to the beginning. How does the Bible teach us to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to God? It does so in this way. For the Son of Man... For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, in the stead of, on behalf of the many. You see what Jesus is doing in that particular passage? He's setting before them the path, the true greatness. He's told his disciples that greatness lies not in rank or in status, but in serving and in giving. And our Lord comes now to the supreme illustration of greatness and that is primarily operative in his kingdom. And he says to the twelve, even the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that the principles of greatness which he has articulated are clearly embodied in himself, even the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is described how in the Old Testament, one who has given dominion and power and authority over all things. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. He is the cosmic king, yet even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. He's saying to his disciples, you assume the posture you see embodied in me. You see, the problem with our lives is that we're in bondage. And so often it's a bondage to which we're blind. Our blindness to it is part and parcel of that bondage. We're in bondage to sin and to Satan beyond sin. 
and were held in the thraldom of sin and Satan. And the essence of that thraldom is what? It is a self-centered life. It is an independently self-centered life. And Jesus has come as the greatest somebody who ever was and became the greatest nobody who ever lived. That, my dear friends, is greatness. That's true greatness. He laid down his life for us. He sought not the good of his own, but the good of others. And he did it for us. Why? Because love loves to serve and to give. Love loves to serve and to give. If any of you young ladies here this morning happen to notice a young man taking, God forbid, taking an interest in you, and you, I want, if, you, if you notice that and you happen to may have somewhat of an interest in him, you need to ask yourself this question. Does this young man give me the impression that the earliest point in our friendship, the earliest point that he holds my best interest at heart and is willing to lay down his life for me? Look to see if that's at the earliest part of your friendship with that individual. Will he serve my good whatever cost to me? That is where the Bible generates the desire to live a life that is pleasing to God. The Bible sinks our lives into Jesus Christ, the servant king, the greatest somebody who ever was, became the greatest nobody who ever lived, and he did so out of, a, out of love for a world of lost sinners. He who was rich beyond all splendor, Yet for love's sake, he came poor. Why are you hanging there, Jesus of Nazareth? Why are you bearing the condemnation of God there on that bloody cross? And his answer is, because my father and I so loved the world. Love loves to serve and to give. Jesus Christ is our example as well as our Savior. And the gospel comes not only to forgive us, but to place and plant our lives into the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the great marks of a life that is planted in Jesus Christ is a heart that loves to serve and to give. It doesn't look for prominence. It doesn't look for preeminence. The truth of the matter is that the hope of the world is bound up in a servant. And no one will ever excel Jesus as the greatest in his kingdom. Right up to the moment, almost the moments before his crucifixion, Luke reminds us in the 22nd chapter of his gospel that the rival real Rivalry between his disciples continued as they jockeyed for position, even then, as to the which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, once again, 
points to himself. He says, greatness is embodied in me. And he says to them, yet I am among you as the one who serves. I am among you as the one who serves. May God be pleased by his grace and in his mercy to grant we, the people of God, the mind of the Lord Jesus. Let us pray.